Okay, welcome back again to the Counter Vortex. With your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of June 17th from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And uh, we're going to be discussing a book tonight. It actually came out uh, in 2018. So uh, it's a little bit late to call it a review. And I'm not going to call it a review in any case because I actually know the author. The author is a friend of mine, so it wouldn't be exactly ethical for me to review it. Um, the book is The Duty to Stand Aside, 1984, and the wartime quarrel of George Orwell and Alex Comfort by Eric Lorson, longtime uh, activist, writer, and uh, anarchist comrade of mine from way back in the day. The reason I'm deciding to discuss this book tonight is because it actually, uh, you know, touches on certain themes which we've been um, exploring on the Counter Vortex podcast in recent weeks. It seems like it's uh, a timely moment to discuss it. But don't think of it as review exactly so much as, uh, you know, the think of it as a part of the contemporary wartime quarrel <laughs> of Bill Weinberg and Eric Lorson. So, uh, actually, no, this book is... Um, I wouldn't be bothering to discuss this book if it were not quite worthwhile, fascinating, learned a lot from it, relevant, timely, and important. But it's also, um, in certain ways, flawed, politically and intellectually flawed, which um, you'll be hearing about. Okay, of these uh, two guys who um, sort of exemplify different tendencies on the left during the uh, World War II period. George Orwell needs no introduction, presumably. He's the better known of the two. Alex Comfort is best known for his 1970 book, The Joy of Sex. But he was actually a, a longtime anti-war activist and uh, at least a pacifist and anarchist sympathizer. And actually, uh, Comfort and, and, and Orwell were friends and comrades and uh, colleagues collaborated even over the course of their, uh, their wartime quarrel over the question of British aerial bombardment in the Second World War. Comfort opposing it, and Orwell kind of going along with it. All right, um, it's interesting. Orwell actually uh, opposed British entry into, uh, into the war as late as 1938, signing a statement that was issued by the Independent Labor Party entitled, quote, If War Comes, We Shall Resist It, and contributing at least one article to Peace News, the uh, publication of the Peace Pledge Union. But it was also uh, just about the same time that he went to Spain to fight in the Spanish Civil War, to fight against the... Uh, the uh, Nazi-backed fascist forces of Generalissimo Franco and his fellow generals who were trying to impose fascism in Spain and ultimately did when they uh, emerged victorious after a three-year bloody conflict in 1939. And that's, uh, his experiences in Spain seem to have uh, solidified a, a pro-war position where standing up to the fascist powers was concerned in Orwell. And in his essay, Looking Back on the Spanish War, he wrote, 
quote, there is always the temptation to say, one side is as bad as the other. I'm neutral. In practice, however, one cannot be neutral, and there is hardly such a thing as a war in which it makes no difference who wins. Nearly always, one side stands more or less for progress, and the other more or less for reaction. And certainly, uh, he would uh, perceive no ambiguity whatsoever where the struggle against fascism was concerned. Alex Comfort, meanwhile, in 1944, penned a protest declaration against the Allied bombardment of Germany. Quote, We the undersigned regard with growing disquietude the wanton destruction of civilian life and national culture by the government's policy of aerial bombardment, the government, of course, being the British government, this is all in England, the government's policy of aerial bombardment, which seems to us to imitate in an aggravated form the example of the Germans. We do not accept the denials issued by the government of the charges for such bombardment is indiscriminate, and we feel it to be our duty as writers, artists, and musicians to protest against it in the strongest possible terms as an offense against humanity. End quote. That same year, 1944, Orwell wrote in his column for the Tribune a defense of the Allied aerial bombardment of German cities. Quote, Now no one in his senses regards bombing or any other operations of war with anything but disgust. On the other hand, no decent person cares tuppence for the opinion of posterity. There is something very distasteful in accepting war as an instrument and at the same time wanting to dodge responsibility for its obviously barbarous features. All talk of limiting or humanizing war is sheer humbug. End quote. Okay, now, <clears throat> that's obviously a very dangerous sentiment. In fact, there already were laws of war by that point. The Geneva Conventions were already in place, although they would be strengthened after the war in response to the horrors witnessed between 1939 and 1945, and then strengthened again in uh, 1977 in response to the U.S. aerial bombardment of Vietnam. So, history was not on the side of the uh, sentiment expressed by Orwell in this passage. Not one of his uh, more brilliant uh, moments in terms of moral or political clarity. But it was a dark time, and he was grappling with this stuff. As I confess, I am. And comfort seems not to have been an absolute pacifist. He was grappling with this stuff as well. And in fact, his uh, 1945 novel, The Powerhouse, glorifies the, uh, the Maquis, who were the, uh, the armed partisans in the French Resistance, which, Lorson writes, he saw as an indigenous movement and not just an assist to the British war against Hitler, but an alternative. End quote. Okay, now that... Uh, strikes me as uh, slicing it very thin, because the French resistance was certainly rooting for the Allied war effort, and 
to a certain degree, coordinating with it, and was certainly receiving aid from British intelligence. And uh, this strikes me as, you know, a pretty clear-cut analogy to how many anarchists in the West today view the Rojava Kurds in northern Syria, who have launched, you know, a sort of left-wing revolutionary movement, anarchist-influenced, at least, left-wing revolutionary movement, and waged a truly heroic armed resistance against ISIS, and ultimately beat them back starting in 2014 and drove them from their territory. But what a lot of anarchists in the West don't want to look at, and Eric Lorson does elsewhere in the book favorably invoke the Rojava Kurds, without mentioning <clears throat> what many anarchists in the West don't want to look at, which is that the Rojava Kurds have since 2014 been actively collaborating with the U.S. war effort against ISIS. And when U.S. warplanes bombed the city of Raqqa, which was the, you know, de facto capital of ISIS, virtually destroying it, it was in support of the Rojava Kurds, who were the ground force which ultimately took Raqqa and had U.S. Green Berets embedded within their ranks. So looking to the Rojava Kurds as a uh, an indigenous alternative to U.S. military intervention against ISIS is a little bit hypocritical and is kind of um, failing to grapple with the reality on the ground, the actual political and military reality on the ground in northern Syria. And I'll add that now that ISIS has largely been, well, they've been driven from all the territory which they actually control in northern Syria. And paradoxically, the Rojava Kurds have wound up uh, as an occupying military force in Arab-majority areas, which they took from ISIS. And the fact that these same areas were heavily bombed by U.S. warplanes that the Rojava Kurds were, you know, collaborating with as a ground force did not win them any goodwill from the local populace. And in fact, repeatedly in recent months, we've seen the... Uh, <clears throat> the Kurdish militias in northern Syria actually opening fire on Arab protesters in the towns and villages that they occupy. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, too many, uh, you know, anarchists in the West who, you know, glorify the Rojava Kurds have not, you know, have not grappled with this. And, you know, I guess in uh, my own thinking about it, I've also sliced it kind of thin. You know, I'll acknowledge this because uh, I was certainly rooting for the Kurds on the ground in their fight against ISIS, absolutely. But on the other hand, I had to protest the, the massive U.S. aerial bombardment of Raqqa and did so on my website, Counter Vortex, and the other platforms available to me. I couldn't do otherwise. On either of those counts, I couldn't fail to support the Rojava Kurds in their ground offensive, and I couldn't fail to oppose the U.S. bombardment of Raqqa. Now, when it began back in 2014, when U.S. warplanes came to the defense of the Kurdish city of Kobani, up in the north, along the Turkish border, which was besieged by ISIS, I couldn't protest those airstrikes. There, the, the U.S. was bombing, besieging ISIS forces, not the civilian population. 
But a couple of years later, when the Kurds had driven ISIS from their own territory and were advancing into Arab territory to the south and advancing on Raqqa, then U.S. warplanes were bombing a civilian population. Whatever claims could be made about precision targeting and so on, they were bombing an inhabited city. And I could not but oppose that. And if that made me an equivocal ally of the Rojava Kurds, well, so be it. And if nonetheless supporting the Rojava Kurds in their ground campaign made me an equivocal opponent of U.S. imperialism, well, once again, so be it. Like I said, I'm grappling with this stuff too. But I have to point out that while, uh, you know, Eric Lorson mentions the Rojava Kurds, but not the fact that they collaborated with U.S. aerial bombardment of a city. And similarly, he mentions the U.S. aerial bombardment of Mosul, the principal ISIS stronghold in Iraq during this same period, but not the simultaneous U.S. bombardment of Raqqa. So I'm not sure if uh, my buddy Eric is consciously trying to cover up for the Rojava Kurds here, but I will also point out that, uh, you know, generally, I have, well, first I have to give him credit for at least mentioning the bombardment of Mosul, <laughs> because generally there was practically no outcry. I mean, I've ranted about this before. From the anti-war forces in the West, there was practically no outcry about the bombardment of either Mosul or Raqqa. Hardly any protests at all. It's like it didn't even happen. Yet on those few occasions, that in response, two occasions actually, that in response to a chemical weapons attack by the Assad regime, the U.S. bombs Assad's military bases, then there are all of these howls of protest. So once again, you know, I have to emphasize, you know, the anarchists aren't so guilty of this, but the general anti-war forces in the West, the kind of the general left consensus position in the West is not anti-war. It is pro-Assad, no matter how they try to disguise it. It is a position in support of the Assad dictatorship. And I am afraid that this loans credence to Orwell's cynical observation in a 1945 essay that, quote, pacifism, as it appears among a section of the intelligentsia, is secretly inspired by an admiration for power and successful cruelty, end quote. Okay, before I get deeper into some of my criticisms of this book, The Duty to Stand Aside, 1984, and the Wartime Quarrel of George Orwell and Alex Comfort by my friend Eric Lorson, uh, I'm just going to touch on one uh, very interesting episode which he discusses, which Eric discusses, in which, despite their political differences, Orwell and Comfort actually uh, collaborated, came together, as part of a campaign to support the publishers of the British anarchist journal Freedom Press when they were arrested for anti-war propaganda in 1945. Now, the two key characters in uh, Freedom Press were... Uh, Vernon Richards and Marie-Louise Berneri, both of whom were uh, Italian anarchists who could not return to Italy because Mussolini was in power there and settled in Britain. Vernon Richards anglicized his name 
obviously. And uh, throughout the war, they published uh, a series of commentaries opposing both fascism and the Allied war effort. And not just like, um, you know, Alex Comfort opposed the um, excesses of the Allied war effort in the aerial bombardment of German cities, but uh, the publishers of Freedom Press opposed the Allied war effort much more completely and sweepingly and kind of took a, uh, you know, a, a, a pox on both your houses position, despite the fact that they were in fact exiled from one of the fascist powers. Now, Orwell obviously did not share this position, this, you know, sort of ruthless, sweeping anti-war position on both sides. And it should be pointed out that, uh, you know, the Freedom Press people were one of the very, very few lonely voices on the left, which did not fall into line and support the war effort. Orwell certainly did support the war effort, in fact, was a, a war propagandist for the BBC during this period. So he did not share their position, but nonetheless, he joined with Alex Comfort to sign a letter in their support after, very late in the war, actually, in 45, they were finally arrested on charges of uh, sedition and undermining the war effort. And I've actually got a book published by uh, Freedom Press a few years ago entitled Neither East Nor West, Selected Writings 1939 to 1948 by Marie-Louise Berneri, which is really fascinating reading. And, uh, they really do take a kind of a, you know, a ruthless neither-nor position. Unlike some of the pacifists who Orwell critiqued, they did not spare any criticism of fascism or attempt to downplay the threat that it posed, but nor did they spare any criticism of the, you know, very real crimes and atrocities of the Allied powers, Churchill, FDR, and Stalin alike. But there's a reason that their position was such a lonely one during those years. All right. Now, well, I have to point out a couple of things where I really have to take issue with my buddy Eric Lorson. All right. Start with the, uh, the narrow historical point first. Lorson writes that uh, even before World War II, Churchill, Winston Churchill, had already written his own chapter in the history of wartime atrocity, while serving as colonial secretary in 1920, having ordered poison gas to be used against rebels in British-held Iraq. Bomber Harris, who would later go on to oversee the Royal Air Force bombardment of Germany, <clears throat> cut his teeth devising aerial assaults in that campaign. All right, this is a matter that I have looked into, and it is certainly a fact that Churchill, not as colonial secretary, which was earlier, but as head of the war office in the 1920s, did advocate the use of poison gas against rebels in Iraq. However, he wasn't exactly in a position to order it, and historians seem to be divided on whether, in fact, poison gas was used by the British against rebels in Iraq. So it is clear that um, Churchill advocated it to Whitehall, as it were. It isn't so clear that it ever actually happened. But it's in uh, his discussions of current affairs, more recent affairs anyway, that uh, 
Lorison gets into, uh, at least, at the very least, sins of omission, which may rise to the level of actual distortions. Um, in his discussion of um, the state of permanent war, which the United States has found itself in at least since 9-11, akin to that depicted by George Orwell in 1984, Lorison writes of, quote, undeclared American wars in Iraq, parentheses, 2002, close parentheses, and Syria, open parentheses, 2013, close parentheses. Now, 2013, if you were actually paying attention, was the year that the United States failed to intervene in Syria. Obama said that use of chemical weapons by Bashar Assad would be a quote-unquote red line. And then he went ahead and did it. Using sarin gas at the Damascus suburb of Gouda in August of that year. And contrary to his earlier threats and ostentatious drawing of a red line, Obama did not respond militarily, but accepted a Russian broker deal whereby Assad would ostensibly give up his chemical weapons. Since then, there have been hundreds of chemical attacks in Syria. Some actually carried out again with sarin gas, which he supposedly gave up after the Russian broker deal in 2013, but more carried out with weaponized chlorine, because chlorine is a so-called dual-use substance, which does have, you know, legitimate industrial applications apart from chemical warfare. And on two occasions since then, after the Khan Shikun chemical attack, in April 2017, and the Duma chemical attack in April 2018, the U.S. launched token limited military strikes on Assad's air bases and just destroyed a few warplanes, both times eliciting howls of protest from the so-called anti-war forces in the West. And it was in 2014, not 2013, but 2014, that the U.S. actually did massively intervene in Syria, but not against the Bashar Assad regime, against ISIS, the enemy of the Bashar Assad regime. And that, in contrast, precipitated no protest from the anti-war forces in the West, despite the fact that it was that campaign, which was not token and limited, but sustained and savage and virtually destroyed the city of Raqqa and took a massive toll in, in, in civilian casualties. So uh, <clears throat> maybe my buddy Eric Lorson was just confused and got the year wrong when he writes about the undeclared American war in Syria in 2013. But I fear that perhaps this uh, <clears throat> error was due to the, you know, subconscious conditioning of so-called anti-war propaganda here in the West to view the U.S. war in Syria as against the Assad regime, which it is not. It is actually on the side of the Assad regime. And to render the U.S. war against ISIS, or more correctly, 
the U.S. massive aerial bombardment of territory controlled by ISIS completely invisible. And Eric gets into uh, similar trouble when he uh, turns attention to Libya. He writes, after having discussed uh, various other U.S. military adventures, he writes, quote, more recently, the examples are many, Britain, France, and the United States orchestrated an air war over Libya, aimed at supporting rebels fighting to remove Gaddafi from power. From August 2011 to April 2012, according to Human Rights Watch, NATO conducted some 9,700 sorties and dropped over 7,700 bombs on Libya. More than one-third hit civilian targets. In some cases, Human Rights Watch could identify no legitimate military target. The attacks killed at least 72 civilians, one-third of them children under the age of 18. The power vacuum the NATO attacks helped create destroyed Libya as a functioning political entity, ushering in a civil war that continues as of this writing, end quote. All right, for starters, uh, I actually wrote this up on my website at the time that that Human Rights Watch report came out back in May of 2012. It was entitled unacknowledged deaths, civilian casualties in NATO's air campaign in Libya. The figure about 72 civilians being killed in NATO airstrikes, one-third of them children under the age of 18, is correct. The report does not say that more than one-third of the NATO airstrikes hit civilian targets. I'm not quite sure where Eric got that from. In fact, on the contrary, the report says that Human Rights Watch looked at the eight cases in which NATO airstrikes were known to have killed civilians. Certainly eight out of 9,700 is not a third. I've got a problem with the notion that it was the power vacuum that the NATO attacks helped create that destroyed Libya as a functioning political entity. First, I find it a little bit ironic that a self-identified anarchist is uh, viewing a power vacuum as necessarily a bad thing. But uh, more to the point, the most significant role in creating the power vacuum in Libya was the 40-year one-man autocracy of Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, in which everything revolved around the dictator and virtually all of society's civil institutions were suppressed. And I am extremely wary of the tendency among anti-war types in the West to display an unseemly nostalgia for the Gaddafi dictatorship and to think that if uh, the foreign powers hadn't intervened, that the Libyan revolution would have been crushed and uh, Gaddafi would have, you know, reconsolidated power and uh, Libya would have lived happily ever after under a stable dictatorship. On the contrary, If you want a picture of what Libya might look like today if Gaddafi was given carte blanche to commit atrocities without any interference from the outside world, look at Syria, which is today the world's greatest humanitarian crisis, perhaps vying with Yemen for that distinction, but certainly in much worse condition than Libya. 
For all of the horrors which we have witnessed in Libya in recent years, things are much worse in Syria, where entire cities have been destroyed, where there have been serial chemical weapons attacks, 12 million people displaced, and half a million killed. So Syria, where there has been massive foreign military intervention in support of the regime, most massively by Russia and Iran, but to a certain extent by the United States as well. The far worse disaster, Syria, where the dictator remains in power 10 years after the Arab Revolution began. And I hear over and over again this ridiculous line that if the U.S. were to intervene against the Assad dictatorship in Syria, then Syria would become another Libya. They should be saying exactly the opposite. It's quite possible that if the Western powers had not intervened in Libya, it would be another Syria. But the far bigger problem with that passage, Eric Larson's passage about Libya, is that it makes no mention whatsoever of the far greater crimes which were being committed by the Gaddafi dictatorship in an attempt to beat back the rebellion and makes it sound as if the Western intervention in Libya in 2011 was merely arbitrary, as it in fact had been in Iraq in 2002. On the contrary, in 2011, the Western powers were able to get approval from the United Nations Security Council for their air war, in contrast to W. Bush's Iraq aggression in 2002, which had no authorization from the United Nations. It was completely unilateral and illegal. The reason the Western powers were able to get United Nations approval for their air war against Libya in 2011 was because of the massive atrocities that the Gaddafi dictatorship was carrying out to beat back the revolution, particularly in Sirte and Tripoli, which were characterized as crimes against humanity by the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Navi Pillay, who was also, by the way, a very harsh critic of the United States and Israel. And the failure to even mention this context in a discussion of the Western Air War in Libya in 2011 is, whether consciously or not, dishonest and for a very different perspective on the Western intervention in Libya. I urge my buddy Eric Lorson to read the book The Responsibility to Protect in Libya and Syria, Mass Atrocities, Human Protection, and International Law by the Syrian-American legal scholar Yasmin Nalawi, or at the very least, to listen to the podcast I did discussing that book back on April 21st of this year. And hear what the voice of an actual Syrian, someone who actually has some skin in the game, has to say on the whole question of so-called humanitarian intervention. And the name of that podcast, <clears throat> in which I discussed Yasmin Nalawi's book on April 21st of this year, was Humanitarian Intervention Reconsidered. And I'm not so much myself, because <clears throat> I had my own differences with Yasmin Nalawi's book, and I'm not so much myself taking a dogmatic position in favor of humanitarian intervention so much as I'm pointing out the problems with a dogmatic position against it. 
And finally, that brings us to, uh, you know, one last point, which is um, the title of the book, which I find really problematic. Okay, the subtitle, 1984 and the Wartime Quarrel of George Orwell and Alice Comfort, is fine, except that the book really doesn't touch that much on the novel 1984, but that's a small point. But the actual title, The Duty to Stand Aside, is really kind of problematic, and it comes from a quote by Alex Comfort in a work entitled Art and Social Responsibility, which is uh, summed up in Eric's text in a paragraph which is uh, kind of a patchwork of verbatim quotes and paraphrase, thusly. Quote, in essence, art is the act of standing aside from society. The responsibility of the artist or writer is to stand far enough away from his subject to be able to see it in a reasonable and historical proportion, which is why the right to stand aside is contested everywhere. End quote. All right, now I believe strongly that, in fact, uh, you know, a writer has a responsibility to have a certain degree of emotional distance from what he or she is writing about. But ultimately, the aim of that self-enforced emotional distance is to arrive at greater intellectual clarity, which can be applied in actually grappling with the complexities of the situation which is under observation. So as to arrive at a more analytically and ethically precise mode of action. Standing aside is an intellectual tool. It's not an end in itself. And certainly, the title, The Duty to Stand Aside, seems to be implying that when your government is carrying out atrocities, it is necessary and, by implication, sufficient to merely stand aside and keep your own hands clean. And there is no such thing. Inaction isn't any guarantee of clean karma. And in the face of fascism and genocide, phenomena which are once again witnessed on the world stage, there is in fact a duty not to stand aside, but to engage with all of the complexities and contradictions, and inevitable anguish that that implies. I urge people to check out this book and to mull on my criticisms of it. (laughs) The Duty to Stand Aside, 1984, and the Wartime Quarrel of George Orwell and Alex Comfort by, uh, I hope he's still my friend after this podcast, Eric Lorson, published by um, AK Press in 2018. Okay, this has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. We have uh, 24 Patreon subscribers. Please, you, dear listener, become number 25. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time. <laughs>